Go to Luke chapter 23 for this morning, if you would. Luke 23. I want to read the section right after Jesus has died about his burial and resurrection. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 50. Now there was a man, the Bible says, named Joseph, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. So he's a member of the group that had just put Jesus to death tried him, but he was a good and a righteous man. Think about what that was like. Who had not consented to their decision and their action. Again, talk about a lonely place. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. The guess is that this was his family's burial place, or his own. And he gives it to Jesus. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Here's the focus of our our time this morning. These behind-the-scenes women that God did great things with and used. The women who had come with him, now we're back to Jesus, had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and went to work, prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. Well, they were perplexed about this. I bet they were. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now they're scared to death. And as they were frightened... And bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise. Jesus had said that like five times to these people. And they still, right? We, they still didn't get it. And now the angels are like, this is what happened. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. It was made up. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. God, we pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that it would shine the light of your truth into our hearts today. That you'd encourage us. I know this is a discouraging, lonely, difficult time for so many. It's been a time of sickness for many in our church. We pray that you would heal them. It's been a time of loss. It's been a time of grief. And we pray that you would um, remind us that in Christ we can live with joy and hope and peace in believing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you have uh, seen this movie. I'm just curious by a show of hands. How many of you have seen this movie? It's called Hidden Figures. It came out in 2016. I, I highly recommend it. As dangerously as a pastor can recommend a movie. Um, it's the story of three ladies. These are the, uh, the actual ladies. Uh, Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Katherine Johnson. Uh, who were pioneering black women uh, doing calculations for NASA during... Uh, early space history, but their stories had kind of been buried. 
And this movie does a phenomenal job taking some remarkable uh, people who were living in an era that was not friendly to them, right? It, it was, a, it was a, a place and time dominated by men, and if you want to say it really frankly, dominated by white men. And so they lived through segregation, they lived through incredible issues and challenges, and yet these were remarkable, skilled, um, able ladies who, who even in spite of all the problems kind of rose to the top, and it's a remarkable, powerful story to watch how these, these ladies who largely function in the background, how their story is just tremendous to see. And what we see in the uh, verses that we just read are some ladies who had been behind the scenes. And in this amazing moment at the empty tomb, God brings them front and center. And so I want to talk about uh, their story a little bit today and tie it into the idea of serving in teams. But in order to get to know these ladies, you need to start in Luke chapter 8. So let's turn back there. Shouldn't be too many pages. You're not even leaving the book. Luke chapter 8. And we learn something about their service, and that is that it was fueled by God's grace. We meet these ladies, the ladies at the empty tomb in Luke chapter 8. Look at verse 1. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. And the 12 were there. The 12 who? Disciples, right? We know every one of their names. They were with Jesus his entire earthly ministry. So they're there. Who else is there? And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them, Jesus and his disciples, out of their means. So we meet these women, and what do we find out about them? The first thing we see is that they are women who had known God's amazing grace. Do you see what their life was like before they met Jesus? Did you notice that in verse 2? They had been healed, the Bible says, of evil spirits and infirmities. They, these were women who had known a life controlled by evil. Now, this is something a bit foreign to our culture, but it's actually fairly common in uh, more spiritual cultures, if I, wanted, if I could say it that way. The idea of someone who was possessed by a demon, who was under the control of Satan, the, the accounts of Jesus' life tell us about people like this from children to adults. The book of Acts tells us about children who had experienced this and that it was a destructive, controlling life. That, that sometimes demons would yell out that they would, they would, people would cut themselves, that they'd be thrown into the fire, that, that there was an effort by Satan and evil to control and harm can you imagine being out of control of your own body? I don't know that I can even relate to what that would have been like. Can you think about the fear? Can you think about the embarrassment, right? The Bible tells us about a man who lived in the tombs, who, who, who was often naked and ran around screaming. And, and these aren't made up stories. This, these are real things that happen when Satan, by his demons, takes control of someone. And this isn't just a story for a past time. This does happen today. So, so that was their experience. We also see that, that some of these ladies had infirmities. They had illnesses. They had sicknesses. Maybe these were lifetime illnesses. Things that couldn't be shaken, that doctors couldn't heal. 
They were living in a world of control and destruction and pain. And we know that beyond these needs, we know the deepest need of their hearts was that their sins would be forgiven. And you know what happened? These women had met Jesus. And you know what happened when they met Jesus? He changed everything. Can you imagine the freedom that you would feel? The weight lifted, the, the control released, the dramatic difference in your life before they met Jesus and after. The accounts of Jesus' life are just full of people like this, like lepers who couldn't heal their own skin disease, like a woman who had been bleeding for years and could never be healed, like a man who had been paralyzed since birth or blind since birth, or a man who was laying by a pool that he thought would heal him, and Jesus came along and healed him. I mean, this is the story of our Bibles, and it goes deeper even than our physical needs to Jesus looking at people and going, your sins are forgiven. They had met Jesus. And life would never be the same. I had the privilege um, of working with a woman uh, when I first moved to Salt Lake City who God had saved out of the adult entertainment industry. She used to joke that she had... um, tried all the crayons in the crayon box to make herself happy. And she said, you know what happens if you color with all the crayons in the crayon box together? You get a really gross, ugly brown slash black color. And the world will tell you that you can try all those things and they'll make you happy. She said, I can tell you, I've tried most of them. And they will not. And God saved her and brought her out of that world and transformed her life. Do you know if you just went back to Luke chapter 7, you would meet a woman just like that in verse 36? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. It makes you wonder if this woman is part of the next chapter. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Can you see her gratitude just coming out? Why? Because Jesus had freed her. He had rescued her. He had saved her. He had transformed her life. Her life would never be the same. Both my parents grew up in difficult homes, so difficult that I still haven't heard a lot of the stories today. There's a part of me that's very curious, but my parents don't talk a lot about their childhood. My dad's dad was an alcoholic who basically abandoned the family. My dad's mom worked incredibly hard just to hold a family of four kids together. My dad tells the story of laying in bed on a New Hampshire night. If you don't know where New Hampshire is, it's kind of up near Maine, okay? all those little states all stuck together, of laying in bed with his three siblings and heating up bricks in the fireplace and putting them at the foot of the bed to keep them warm at night. Sadly, as my dad grew into his college years, he started to go down the same path as his dad. As much as he hated, and I, w- I don't know if I'd say despise, but it was, it was hard, he started to go down the same path under the control of alcohol. And you know what the Bible tells us? Sin has pleasure for a little while. 
It makes you feel good for a bit. But you know what it does in the end? It kills and destroys. It enslaves. And around the age of 25, God reached into my dad's life through some friends and relatives who were talking to him about Jesus, and he rescued him. And his life was never the same. And you know what? My life is not the same. And Timothy's life is not the same. Because when Jesus enters your life, it's dramatically different. You didn't have to twist the arms of these ladies to serve. They wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to give and help and serve. So I have an interesting question for you today. How is your life, how is my life dramatically different since I met Jesus? I thought about that this week because I'm next generation. I grew up in a Christian home. I was protected from a lot of things. I heard the truth from a young age. So I thought about how is my life dramatically different because I know Jesus? And I actually have a challenge for you. Today sometime, tomorrow, would you sit down and ask yourself that question? And try this. Try to come up with three specific ways your life is different because you know Jesus. I thought of these three for myself. One, there is a real answer for my sin. Sin is ugly, discouraging, despairing, dark. And there is an answer every day when I sin in the forgiveness of Jesus and there is an eternity where I won't have to pay the penalty for my own sin. That's dramatically different than how I would live without Jesus. Do you know as someone who's a thinker, when you get into the downward spiral of thinking about your own sin, you can go to dark and bad places. There's a reason that people take their own life. Because life can get hopeless. And sin is ugly. And Jesus is the real answer for my sin. The second thing I thought of was this. I live a life, I live for a life beyond this life. It's a crazy time we live in, isn't it? Politics, economics, the world is nuts. Do you know that doesn't have to freak me out? It doesn't have to freak you out. You don't have to fear death. The world is running from death. You don't have to fear death. If this whole thing falls apart, if my personal life falls apart, if my home value plummets to zero, if, if church disintegrates and I have no job, this life is not all there is. I live for a life and a place and a home beyond this life. And that's only because of Jesus. And you know the last one I thought of, and this is very personal, my marriage is still in one piece because of Jesus. Can I tell you this? Probably, Colleen and I should not have made it to our fifth anniversary. Between how different we are, how different our backgrounds are, how sinful we are, and I don't say that like, praise God for lots of years of marriage. I say that in all seriousness to you. And this May, God willing, we'll celebrate our 17th anniversary, which to some of you is a lot and to some of you ain't that much. But I can tell you sincerely that the reason that our marriage is still in one piece is because of Jesus. How is your life dramatically different 
since you met Jesus. If this isn't the motivation for our service, if we don't see our life like these ladies did, then our life will become an effort to impress God and impress others. It'll be filled with pride and manipulation and not with love. But the resurrection, the impact of Jesus, it really does change everything and it changes how we serve. So look at the second thing we see here. We see life-altering service. Look at the end of this. There were some women with Jesus and the end of verse three who provided for the disciples and Jesus out of their means. They live lives of service. They, they seem to have followed Jesus and his disciples wherever they went, and it seems like they were the setup crew and the teardown crew and the cleanup crew and the making dinner crew and the, and the doing whatever behind the scenes needed to be done crew. They, they were the people behind the camera that you don't see when you see the star. I mean, really, the, the centerpiece of the New Testament story is Jesus, obviously, but think about how front and center the disciples are. Just everywhere you're hearing about them and their questions that they have and how they're following Jesus. And it seems like behind the scenes, there were these ladies who were just making it all happen. Does that sound familiar? Anybody able to relate to that? What was their service like? Well, it was costly. You see that in verse three, they provided out of their means. Jesus didn't give him the, the um, you know, the Christ debit card. Like here, hey, go get us some food. Jesus didn't, they didn't have like a bank account that Jesus was like, hey, take care of this. Now we do know that people gave and, and Judas took care of that, which is a fascinating thing. But, but here were women who just, out of their hearts, they just provided. We're gonna take the teens to camp this summer. We're gonna have a meeting right after this. I'm super excited about unveil some things. It's gonna be awesome. But I, I remember on many occasions before I took teens to camp, usually it was one of the grandparents in our church. Not always, but most of the time. And there were usually a couple. And they would come over and they would, they would do like the $100 handshake. You ever had a $100 handshake? Only it wasn't for me. <laughs> it wasn't like, hey. It wasn't like, hey, thanks for taking the teens to camp. It was, hey, if any of the teens need anything, here's something to help. They weren't asking if the church budget had enough funds in it. They were just out of their own means. They gave. Their service was costly. But go back to Luke 23. I want to show you a couple other things. Go back to the story right before the resurrection. Notice that their service was inconvenient. They followed Joseph as he took Jesus to the tomb. So they've doubtless been up at least the better part of a day. But when they see where Jesus is laid, verse 56 says, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So they, they kept working into the night. And then chapter 24, verse 1 says, on the first day of the week after resting on the Sabbath at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They stayed up late and they got up early. I think about our musicians sometimes who are here a good hour, hour and a half for any of the rest of us on Sunday getting ready to serve us. It's not convenient. Listen, most of us have trouble getting up and getting through the door and being on time Sunday morning. Anybody relate? Right? And here, here are musicians and almost all of them have kids and families and so, so mom's coming to play the piano and she's asking dad if he can, you know, pull it together with the kids and please make sure their outfits match and they've, they've you know, the hair's brushed and, you know, it, like there's sacrifice. It's inconvenient. It's behind the scenes, largely unrecognized, unnoticed. It's interesting to me as we read about these ladies that we don't even know all their names. Service to God is often unnoticed. But I'm encouraged by these two thoughts. 
Their service is faithful. They're reliable. Listen to Matthew 27, 55 and 56. This is right after Jesus has died. The Bible says there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. So we're talking about the same ladies, right? Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who were the sons of Zebedee? They were a couple of Jesus' disciples. So at the cross as Jesus is dying, where are the men? I can tell you. They ran away. They were scattered. We know of one of the disciples at the foot of the cross, right? We know John was there. But you know what we know about? Lots and lots of women who were there. I told this to Colleen last night. You know what she said? She said, I bet I know what James and John's mom was saying. Where are those boys? I trained them better than this. These are women who followed Jesus and were faithful. And I'm struck as I read through my Bible about the oftentimes weak and fragile faith of men and the oftentimes strong faith of women that I read about. That's not making one better than the other. It's just really interesting. And so here are women who are just faithful. And, and when Jesus died, they didn't go hide somewhere in fear. They actually said, hey, there's more work to do. Let's get his grave ready. And they went back to work. Late at night, early into the morning, at, at personal cost. I'm also struck that you never find these women alone. They're always serving together. Women are like clusters. <laughs> they just, you know, they're always together. They're serving together. And by the way, this is the pattern of the Bible. The Bible, the Bible doesn't hold up a bunch of lone ranger. I know it's kind of an American thing. But, but Jesus called 12 disciples. He trained 70 disciples. He sent them off two by two. We, we read in the Old Testament about people like Moses surrounded by other guys like Aaron and Hur and, jo and uh, Joshua. We read about David and his mighty men, Gideon and the 300. The book of Acts is filled with people like Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, everyone who traveled behind the scenes to help them. It's interesting that the New Testament letters are written to guide whole churches we're supposed to be serving together. I'm thankful for the teams that God has built here. I understand that there are times, and certainly Danny goes home and studies and prepares, and, and he doesn't call me and, and ask me if I can come over and study with him. So there are places where we serve alone, but for the most part, we ought to be serving together and in teams and helping one another out. None of this should rest on any one person in any one place. These women make me think about our young moms mentioned the babies that have been born recently, but I think about the sleepless nights, the early mornings, the endless diaper changes, the spit up, the tantrums. I think about the places of serving unnoticed and behind the scenes. You know who it's not unnoticed by? God sees it. We'll make a shameless plug for our cleaning schedule. I mean, that's not glorious, but we should all find a place. And don't do it by yourself. Grab a friend. Serve together. Whose kingdom are we living for? What are we arranging our lives and making our plans around? Are we okay for our plans to be altered and our lives to be affected so that we can serve God with them? We should all be finding places to serve our Savior and we should find it with others. We should stop caring whether our place is prominent, noticed, or applauded. We should just find it and be faithful.
I want to show you guys a quick Jews video. Jews for Jesus is oh, an organization back. comprised of Jewish people you, who've come back to, to believe that Jesus nope. is the Messiah, that the Tanakh prophesied It's a group called come. Jews for Jesus. As an organization, we do a variety of things. We host events like Shabbat dinners and high holiday services. We do bar and bat mitzvah training and camp programs. We go out on the street, talk to people, and hand out cold brew coffee. We also give back by cleaning up city parks and partnering with local charities. But most of what we do is sit down with people, study the scriptures, and discuss whether Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah. I was challenged to read the New Testament, and I hadn't really read it. As I was reading it, I found myself um, more and more drawn in to the story of grace. I want to give Jewish people the opportunity to look into Jesus for themselves and decide whether or not they think he's the Messiah rather than let that decision be made by rabbis 2,000 years ago. Because he's given me so much, I want to be able to give that to others. That's what I do. So why did you show us that? One, I thought it was kind of cool and encouraging, right? A group of Jewish people. But they also wrote this article. It's called The Role of Women in the Bible. What was it like to be a woman from the time of the Old Testament through? I think it ties into where we're going to go next. In the Old Testament, right, in that time in history, they note this. In ancient Israel, women participated in every aspect of community life, except as temple priests. Women freely engaged in commerce and in real estate. They were included when God instituted his Mosaic covenant. They were present when Joshua read the law to Israel. Their presence was just not just an option. They were required to be present. They weren't limited to private roles. Some exercised leadership responsibilities. God told Abraham to listen to his wife. Proverbs 18 tells us whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. Proverbs 19 says that an intelligent wife is a gift from God. They weren't limited dramatically. But then they say this, the social condition of women in the first century had been radically altered from that of their ancient sisters. By the time of Jesus, the role of women had drastically changed for the worse. In theory, women were held in high regard by first century Jewish society, but in practice, this was not always true. The concept of tezuna, or the private role of women, was based on Psalm 45, 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. While a man's primary responsibility was seen as public, a woman's life was confined almost entirely within her private family sphere. Women were not allowed to testify in court. In effect, this categorized them with Gentiles, minors, deaf mutes, and undesirables, such as gamblers, the insane, usurers, and pigeon racers, I thought that was funny, who were also denied that privilege. Customarily, even a woman of stature could not engage in commerce. That's interesting because Proverbs 31 says that the diligent woman is engaged in helping with the wealth of her home. And she would rarely be seen outside her home. Only a woman in, in dire economic straits who was forced to become the family breadwinner could engage in her own small trade. In New Testament times, respectable women were expected to stay within the confines of the home. The terminology for a prostitute was, quote, one who goes abroad. The woman of the first century did not even do her own shopping, except possibly to go out accompanied by a slave to buy material with which she could use to construct her own clothing at home. The women recounted in the New Testament were likely illiterate, since the rabbis did not consider it incumbent upon women to learn to read in order to study the scriptures. Based upon Deuteronomy 4.9, teach the law to your sons, the rabbis declared women to be exempt from the commandment to learn God's word. 
Indeed, one rabbi said it is foolishness to teach the law to your daughter. Women were separated from men in private, public, and religious life. They could go to the temple, but could not venture beyond the confines of the women's court. You know what's interesting is that that's not part of the Old Testament plan. It's actually something that was instituted. One passage uh, from the Jewish writings perhaps best sums up the situation of women in the first century. It says this. They are swathed like a mourner, referring to the face and hair coverings, isolated from people and shut up in prison. That was the reality. But what about Jesus? Right? The, the article goes on to say this. By publicly including women in his ministry, Jesus shattered the customs of his day. He shattered this darkness by offering his teachings freely to anyone who would listen, whether they were women or men. We see him directly talking with women on numerous occasions. You think about the woman at the well. You think about people who came to be healed. Another paradigm-breaking moment is found in the story of Jesus and his disciples at the home of the sisters Mary and Martha. Where's Mary sitting? Right at Jesus' feet, learning. We see Jesus publicly associating with women. And then here's the powerful point and the end of our, where we're going today. The first proclaimer of Jesus as the coming Messiah was a woman, Anna. This is the one we've been waiting for. It was women who were with him at his execution, and we learned this morning, and women who were the first to proclaim his resurrection. This is where it gets glorious. Look back in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, these Ladies went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These women are the first to the tomb of Jesus. They see the glory of the resurrected Savior. Yeah, they're scared. Yeah, they don't know what to do with it. It reminds me of the shepherds. There's a Savior that's been born. They're like, who, us? They get to be the ones these ladies do to share the good news. Verses 8 through 11 tell this, and they remembered his words, returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. They were the messengers. And John chapter 20 tells us about a sweet moment when Mary goes back to the empty tomb, doesn't it? And she's the first one to see Jesus personally. So they go from behind the scenes to front and center. They were the first responders, ladies first, if you want to say that, at the empty tomb. That's incredible. I want you to listen to these verses. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. we read earlier, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hebrews chapter 6, God is not unjust, verse 10, so as to unlook, uh, overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my rewards with me to repay each one for what he has done. I don't know what the picture looked like. It was definitely not just one, though. I know there were, there were multiple ladies there. But what a moment to go from the background to front and center, to faithfully serve God for years, unappreciated, unnoticed, and then to be there. 
at the highlight of human history. Quickly, what next? Can I just encourage you like we started off to think often of how your life is dramatically different? That might take some work. For some of you, it's gonna be right there on the surface. But, but the motivation for our service comes out of God's grace and what he's done for us. Two, find a place. You say, I don't really have a place yet. Find one. We'll get you plugged in. Serve, but don't serve alone. Don't get stranded on an island. Do it with someone else. By the way, cleaning the church, way more fun with somebody else. I can just tell you that. We've done it many times ourselves, and it's okay. But uh, we're going to do it this week with the Hillikers, and that'll be way better. It'll go faster. We'll laugh. We'll have fun. They can do the jobs I don't want to do. It's perfect. No, just kidding. Do it together. Serve together. You say, well, what I do is kind of like I just do it. Well, then you should pull somebody along and teach it to them. Get them involved and keep on serving. There is a glorious future. These ladies are just a picture of what God does as people faithfully serve him. It's never missed. It's never really in the background. It may feel like it's in the background to us, but God notices and God rewards it. And ultimately, we're not going to get to heaven and go, look how great I was at serving. We're going to go, man, what a privilege to serve Jesus. What a privilege to be, to be in his work. Look what he did through me. I'm a mess. I'm a nothing. I'm not impressive. But him, he's glorious. The, the empty tomb wasn't special because the ladies were there. They, they, they got the front row seats. They got to see it. They, they got to, to, to witness the glory. But, but it wasn't special because of them. That was God's kindness to them. But our glory awaits too. When we see him, we'll be like him, and we'll see him as he is. So serve, willingly, joyfully, because you have a Savior who gave his life for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of these ladies who you took from some very hard places and rescued, where you alone can rescue, you alone can save. Thank you for what you've done in my life and the lives of many around this room. God, we pray if there's any who have never known Jesus in this way, he's never freed them from their sin, forgiven them, become their savior and their Lord, that even today would be that day. And God, our, our hearts look forward to the day when your glory will be revealed, when all the books will be opened, when everything will be settled, when we will cast our crowns at your feet and we will say we have just been unprofitable servants, we have just done what we should. Please help us to, to endure the cost, the sacrifice, the being unnoticed, and to faithfully serve you together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.